Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Christopher Kievel is joining me on the show today. Chris is an ordained Zen priest and senior Dharma teacher in the Single Flower Sangha. He has been practicing Zen since 1991 and teaching since 1998 in the lineage of his teacher, Zen master Bo Mun, George Bauman, who is, a, who is a Dharma heir of the Korean Zen master, Sengwon San. Christopher is also managing director and founder of Wellspring Consulting, a national firm that helps nonprofit leaders develop strategy for a future in areas such as education, health, social justice, and the environment. Previously, he was a partner at the Boston Consulting Group, an international management consultancy. Earlier, he worked as a carpenter and house builder and as a musician and dance caller in the Irish and New England folk traditions. Finding Zen in the Ordinary, his new book offers honest and thought-provoking spiritual insights drawn from daily life experiences. The book includes 48 brief stories, prose, poems, dialogues between Zen student and teacher, and reflections on moments of spiritual awakening. Welcome, Christopher. Hi, everybody. New PSA for the second half of April. If you have not yet subscribed to my newsletter, please do so at dramyrobbins.com. You can just find all the information you need there to subscribe. You can also subscribe through uh, Instagram now at Dr. Amy Robbins, and I'm going to be on this new app called Fireside. It is an app where you can listen to the podcast live and ask questions. So it's an audience participation app. It is in beta right now, but I'm super excited to have been brought on as one of their first creators. So if you are interested in following me over there, Uh, Like I said, it's in beta, so it might take a couple of days for you to get approved, but all you have to do is go to www.firesidechat.com slash Amy Robbins, and I will link to that in my show notes as well. And this will give you the opportunity to engage with my guests, and I'll start promoting my guests uh, as I'm getting ready to record the episode, you'll still have available the ability to listen to episodes after the fact, the same way you're listening to them now. But this is a great chance for you all to get on board and speak to the amazing guests that I have on the show. So again, DM me if you have any questions on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear to be here with you, Amy. Do you like Chris or Christopher? Is there a Chris preference? is fine. Chris okay. is fine. Thank you. So I hope I got all those pronunciations right, because that was a yep. little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, gosh, we need Zen in the ordinary, it seems, now more than ever before. Can you explain what exactly is Zen versus other traditions of Buddhism or you know, mm. meditation or mindfulness or any of those things? I'd say perhaps in a nutshell, Zen is the practice of being with the present moment. Uh, That probably is bringing it down to its most basic, being here in this present moment. And uh, the word Zen comes from a 
Chinese word, Chan, which meant uh, to sit. And it uh, is founded on the uh, practice of sitting meditation, which then develops the uh, experience and orientation toward being present with this moment. And in sitting uh, in any meditation, but uh, Zen also, it's a training in getting uh, more able to be with what is and what's arising. And so that can be joy and wonder. Uh, it can be challenges and difficulties. And it may seem simple to just be with this moment and what's the big deal. But the fact is that one develops wisdom and equanimity and uh, flexibility of choice in one's life when one develops the ability to be present in this moment and can be more helpful to others and more helpful to oneself. Mm. And I would say that it's got all sorts of com com similarities to other forms of Buddhism and other forms of meditation and spiritual practice generally. Uh, some of the things that are specific about Zen are, it comes from a long tradition uh, in uh, China and uh, Asian countries, Japan, Korea, uh, Vietnam. It came to the United States maybe 50, 60 years ago and has developed and flourished here. And therefore, some of the beauty of it is its long tradition and that there have been hundreds and thousands of people gone, who've gone before who have engaged in this practice and their wisdom is available through the teachings and through the experience of others. So how would it differ from like, a, a, I'm just thinking about as a therapist mm. and you're sitting with people and you're encouraging them to sit in there, whatever it is they're feeling. Mm. How, is, how would you say it differs from that? I would Other say that principle seems as if it's the same principle to be present with what it is they're going through. I would say in my own life, Due to having engaged for 30 years in Zen practice, when I work with my clients in a consulting environment, I'm more able to sit in stillness and equanimity with their issues. And therefore, I think I can be a more uh, present and helpful agent for the process that we're engaged in. And I would say that for the therapist, if they have some practice which gives them the ability to be in the moment with great presence and equanimity and availability, uh, it makes them more able to respond in appropriate ways to uh, partner with that patient or client who is going through some kind of developmental process. And so I would say it's not different from therapy, but it's a, a centuries-old mechanism that strengthens the ability to be present in the moment and connect honestly uh, and genuinely with other people. And that can be very helpful in the therapeutic setting. Gotcha. And, and when people are practicing this on their own, mm -hmm. because I hear this from a lot of people often, like I can't meditate, it's so difficult. Mm -hmm. And what I think people are often saying is that it's really hard for me to sit with myself and what comes up with myself. How does the Zen tradition look at that? Like. Yeah. Is it sort of an observation of what what is coming up for you, like just holding that and recognizing it, processing it? Yeah. Well, in the Zen tradition, uh, working with uh, a uh, community, you know, being a part of a, a community of people, it can be a loose community or just some friends, but some people who share in an interest of 
meditation and spiritual inquiry, and also engaging in some way with uh, sort of a process or practice in that is recognized as being important and helpful because it's very difficult to sit still and be present with oneself. And so if there are friends that one is joining together with to do that, that's actually regarded as one of the three central tenets of Buddhism, that it, it's kind of a, a, almost a necessary requirement. So when people say, I can't meditate, a question might be, well, could you meditate with a friend? Or could you meditate with a, uh, if you talked with a friend once a week about how your meditation is going? And in those instances, they might say, yeah, I might be able to try that. And in fact, it might be that someone would just say, I'll meditate for a week for five minutes, and I'll do it with a friend, and we'll see what happens. And after a week, meditating every day for five minutes, we'll talk about it and see what happens and how, how, what we made of it, and maybe we'll do it for another week. And that, I think, allows you probably to face anything that might arise, because it gives you a context, a rhythm, and a relationship which then uh, are really, I think, are part of meditation, particularly in the Buddhist and uh, Zen practices. So is, is a Zen meditation a specific type of meditation, like a mantra-based meditation or a breath-based meditation, or is it just sitting and observing the thoughts? Like, how does it look relative to uh, other meditations? There is a variety of different approaches taken uh, in Zen, and many of them overlap with approaches you might see in other Buddhist traditions or in other yogic traditions or even in Christian traditions. Uh, but some of the approaches that are common in Zen are uh, to follow uh, by counting one's breath. And the breath is really both the unconscious and the conscious at work. We can allow our breath to go unconsciously or we can engage it consciously. So it kind of rests at that fulcrum point between the conscious and unconscious. And if one counts every out-breath up to 10, just breathing out and counting one, breathing out, counting two, go to 10, and then start all over again, one finds that one quickly loses track of one's counting because the mind goes galloping off somewhere. <laughs> and that's not a failure. That's actually an observation of what the mind just does. It does it even for very practiced uh, people who have meditated for a long time. And the point is to bring oneself back and say, okay, start at one again. Okay, I don't have to even worry if I forgot at six, what was the number I left off on? Just start at one and keep going. And it's a training to bring oneself back to the present activity. Uh, and so that is one practice. Another is um, uh, practicing with what are called Zen koans or short stories that are uh, examples of a kind of an awakening or an opening moment often between a teacher and a student, and then uh, meditating on these stories in order to gain insight into uh, how our lives work or how uh, happiness arises, uh, those kind of things. So that's another practice. Another practice is a practice that's called just sitting, where one just sits still and allows whatever to arise and continues to bring oneself into the present moment. And because that doesn't have any particular methodology, it can be challenging, but it's also very pure in the sense that there's nothing that you're doing. You just keep watching that if, if you think you start doing things and you have these ideas, you're thinking about yesterday, what are you going to do with your friend tomorrow, then you let that go and you come back and you just sit with the moment. And so that's another approach. Um, and so those are some of the common approaches used, but it's, uh, it's not as if some other approaches are wrong or won't work. 
Uh, and so if other people have ways that they find work well, it's almost like encompassed in the sense of all of us are seeking spiritually. Well, and I want to just highlight what you said, which was even sort of the most practiced meditators' minds still jump from in my in my when my mind usually wanders i'll never forget i did a transcendental meditation training mm-hmm. and she the the teacher said to us tell tell me where your mind went mm-hmm. and mine was like you know i was sitting there quietly and then it went to like did i buy salad for dinner tonight did i get the right dressing is the salad in a bag am i going to have to empty out the bag do I need to wash? And it was like, the, it was so interesting to see just the randomness of thoughts that come in yeah. when, you're, when you're watching them. Yeah. Well, one of the um, analogies or images that, gets, uh, that I've heard in, in the Buddhist tradition is that our, our mind is like a vast ocean. And in fact, it's like the, all the waves and the ripples on the ocean. And if you go to the actual ocean, it's never glass smooth. No, it's fascinating to me. Same way our minds are never glass smooth, that there's there's unconscious processes ongoing all the time, and some of them emerge consciously. But if one meditates very, very deeply and gets incredibly still, there's still fluctuations with the heartbeat that are going on that may kick up some responses in the mind. There's, there's like things are constantly in motion and in changing. Even though if someone's sitting entirely still, you might think like, oh, it's entirely, everything has stopped. But in fact, everything is very still, but there's still a high level of activity uh, that's going on. Um, and so the point of Zen is not to completely stop all thinking, but it is to bring oneself through discipline to a very still space so that one builds capacity to be present in any moment not to avoid any moment uh, through some kind of practice. Well, and I certainly find like too when I'm meditating and I recognize that my mind was just still, it's already it's already too late, right? Because it already That's recognized right. that it was still and I'm That's already right. out of it. And then I'm like, oh gosh, how do I get back yes. to that stillness yes. again? I know, I know. Yeah. And it's like so fleeting too. It's like, yeah. it, but I don't know if it was fleeting because I don't know if I just didn't recognize it until I recognized that it was gone. And then, <laughs> well, that's part of the humor of it, or the or the it, there's sort of a mystery in the midst of it all, in that, uh, and then then often we'll beat ourselves up and say, oh my gosh, I haven't been meditating long enough. I should be able to last in that state for ten minutes, not like fifty seconds or whatever it was. <laughs> right. And then you th- there's all sorts of things that kick up, but again, it's almost just like the dust swirls in the air when there's uh, you know the wind comes by or something. It's just so being kind with oneself and bringing oneself back to oh, that's the way the mind works. Not just my mind, but we all have that kind of process going on. You're making me wanna make sure I meditate today because I didn't get it in yet this morning, but I'm going to do it after this. So I pulled a couple of passages out of the book that I would like to dig a little bit deeper into. Um, The first one is, is, but my mind says you can't do it. This happens often before I give a talk. Then I give a talk and it's one of the most generative, joyful things I do. They appear erect. Why can I not pronounce this? Irreconcilable. The feeling that it's never enough and yet doing it so beautifully. 
that not enough mind seems to come up no matter what we do. Yet when I dissolve my small mind and enter into the moment, I'm amazed by the beauty of it. So how do we get past this not enough mind or fear mind? I think it's probably different for everybody, but everybody probably has some version of that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, it's, it doesn't go away. It, it, no matter how one deeply one engages in spiritual practice, uh, and not even just Zen, it, it, it doesn't go away. This not enough mind, this yearning for something else and something more, this feeling of inadequacy, it, it's sort of like just the internal weather. Uh, it comes and goes. I think for most all of us, some of us are have a lot more confidence than others. Some of us face different kinds of internal challenges than others. But it seems so universal that we all enter into these spaces of feeling like we're not enough in some fashion. It seems to me that it may be one of the engines that causes us to be social beings because if we didn't care whether we are enough or not, then we wouldn't really notice whether we were being helpful to other people or whether we were playing out a a useful role in the societal uh, arena in which we uh, operate. So it feels like it may be actually a very important aspect of being human to uh, grapple with this feeling of not being enough. And and I think certainly through my own training and my own experience, it's not that that feeling goes away, but one starts to see it that it is just uh, a sort of neutral aspect of being human. And it comes up at times, can be very powerful and very gripping at times, and if one waits with it, it generally shifts and changes. It goes away, and then on another hour, another day, one isn't feeling it at all. And it's a sort of a ongoing path of, and, and by being aware of the way it changes and being not identified with, oh, I am such a, you know, uh, in un, unconfident person because I always have these feelings of not being enough, but rather, I, like all people, have these feelings arising and falling away then it gives one sense of space and equanimity to simply live life. And one, in a sense, doesn't necessarily get rid of the feeling, but one has one's own life. I get to be really me. I don't have to wish I was somebody else. I am me and I'm fully myself. And that's a gift that myself receives. And it sounds like that's where, is um, is mm-hmm. that where the notion of detachment comes from? that you're not fully connected to that being your identity. It's Mm. something that almost exists outside of yourself in a way. I would say it differently in the sense, uh, I would use the term non-attachment rather than detachment. Okay. Because I think that one ends up becoming increasingly wholly oneself And so detached might sound like you're standing apart from your experience and Mm. feeling detached about it. But non-attachment would mean that I am not attached to trying to have a really great interview with Dr. Amy Robbins, hopefully, but rather engaged wholly in learning about you and trying to be genuine and present together so that we can actually have a meaningful interchange and your listeners can perhaps gain something that's really useful to them. And so if I'm not attached to how I think this should go or what I hope to achieve from it, but I'm present with you and me together, then 
we both gain more of the gift of each other and ourselves, but we're not attached to something that we expect or hope for. And so that's really what I'm driving at. Well, and I'm just thinking about, because I'm always thinking about how all these spiritual pieces then fit together, right? Mm-hmm. And I th- and, and psychological pieces. And when I think about that, I it, it gets me thinking about like how um, connected we often are to the outcome of something and how it has to look a certain way. And then that blocks the opportunity for it to look any way it's supposed to look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a paradox as well, because... You know, in our lives, we do put attention into making sure our, you know, hair is combed or that we have clothing that matches or, you know, and these things are natural. They're a way of our, uh, and I'm not sure if everybody combs their hair, but it just, you know, that sense of how to make sure. My, that, my boys do not. I know, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and finding a way to uh, present oneself so that one connects with others, I think is also natural. And having this desire to be acceptable is natural. But letting go of the attachment, it's almost like a paradox. I seek to be presentable. And at the same time, I let go of an attachment to being presentable. And I can live both of those together rather than having to choose one or the other. And that's where meditative practice happens because it allows one to get close to paradoxes, which you can't really resolve in your mind. It's like, well, if I want to look presentable, how can I not be attached to being presentable? That doesn't make sense. But if you meditate deeply on it, you find an emotional space where you rest in quietness and acceptance of the best one can do and don't expect anything more. And so the attachment falls away And yet the intention to be present and accessible to others can still arise. Got it. This is is some good. This is some good stuff for me today. (laughs) Okay, so another one. This is number 20 that you talk about, and it's called the question. Mm. I hope no one's like reading too much into what I chose here as my uh, (laughs) the things that I pulled out of the book, because I'm sure Uh, it's very telling, says the therapist in me. Yeah. An ant vigorously investigating my desktop stops to clean his antenna, using his forelegs to wipe them attentively, first one, then the other. He pauses, surveying his surroundings, then dashes forward again, zigzagging left and right across my desk. Does he ever wonder in his own tiny way, why am I here? Like the time not long ago when I was standing at the foot of my father's bed, his intellect mostly gone from radiation treatments to his brain, he smiled beautifully, but could only muster a quiet hello. What is any of us doing here, given that we each crumble in our own time? Do you have an answer for us? My answer is our present moment. And to try to go into that a little bit more, that question has haunted me and pulled at my pants and pushed me over so much over the course of my life. I suffered from that question of why am I here deeply during my college years and found really no solace in many directions that I turned. Uh, because it seemed like every answer was provisional. You're here to try to get a good grade in college and get a job, or you're here to 
you know, be a good, uh, you know, fun friend that other people want to spend time with, or I was a, prof- a performing musician, you know, to, to be uh, great at playing music. And, but I realized it was all deeper than that. And I couldn't find the root of it. And I realized through Zen practice that I, my intellect was not a way to find the root answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Why am I here? It's an unanswerable question by trying to figure it out intellectually. And yet, uh, in deep meditation, one starts to feel this amazing affirmation of one's being. There's a common statue of Buddha where he's sitting in cross-legged position and his hand is reaching in front of his legs and touching the earth. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very common uh, representation of the moment when he was being challenged by the spirit of um, illusion and, um, and, and feelings of failure and said, you have no right to leave me behind and wake up to the, the, your, your true life. And he touched the earth and said, the earth is my witness. I have a right to be awakened. And it uh, is really in that sense of um, I am here because I am here. And my gift to the world is first my true self. And from there, if I'm wholly genuine, I can act and share in ways that can be um, useful and helpful to others. And that's the living of the answer, but it has to be lived each day and each moment because if I think I know the answer to how my true self should arise, as we're talking, for instance, I'll go past it and not truly engage. I have to feel the sense of sort of uh, 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 uncertainty. Uh, uh, you know, what's going to happen now? Will I say the right thing? Uh, will I be perceived as um, someone uh, that is uh, worth engaging with? And that fear has to be there for me to be wholly genuine because it's actually a part of the moment. And that then allows me to answer the question of why am I here? Because it only is answered by my presence in this very moment. Okay. I think I got that. How do we know that we are present in this very moment? Or if we're thinking <laughs> about question. it, Good have we question. gotten taken out of the, that we're present in this very moment? Right. That's a wonderful question. Uh, I... Let me go into that. Just let, give me a moment to okay. sort of be present with your question. But I, I think it's experiential. And I think that's one reason that meditation is helpful. Because in our daily lives, there's so much going on either externally because we have to make breakfast or sweep the floor or internally where we're concerned about whether we got the salad and the dressing for the evening, (laughs) then it's very hard to experience arrival at this present moment. And yet I think when one does, one knows that it's going on. So that if I sit in meditation, it's a sense, it's a practice period. It's a, it's a, once taking a shot at it, I'll say, let's see, can I bring myself wholly here? 
can I, can I be with this entire moment right now? Very still, not much going on. Maybe there's a ticking of a clock or the car going by on the street outside and not much else. And yes, I'm not present very much. My mind goes galloping off and I feel that my legs are a little sore and I feel an itch on my face and I scratch it and then I'm bringing myself back. But I think you know it when it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of right here. I, I'm right here. This is this is this moment. There's not much else going on. I'm actually, and I don't think one has to create get it in perfection. It's like one is like this incredible Buddha figure with no thoughts and entirely still. It's more like a human experience of being present. Is is it similar that once you recognize that you were, is it similar in the meditation like I described before that it's almost like once you start thinking about your presence, you're now out of presence. Yes, that's and a very common experience for me too. But I find that it's like a whole series of layers. You know, my mind can be very churned up and then it can be, start to settle and then it can get quite still and my body can start to feel very still. And then I can start to go into a sense of very little happening in my body and my mind. And then I might get so still that it almost feels like there's just only still awareness and nothing else, just this bright, clear awareness. But then... There may be this thought of, oh, wow, you know, maybe I've reached it or, oh, this is such a cool place that I'm in and I will bump up, but I will only bump up a little ways. And then if I stay still, I'll settle back down again. So it's, it's, a, it's a momentary sort of maybe, you know, uh, inflection upward, but there's still often a good long period of time when one is really a, in large portion, really present, really here. And so it's training in the perhaps easiest way possible in, in seated position in a quiet space so that I can do it when I'm having a conversation with my child or when I'm talking with a client or when I'm in the you know, food uh, place buying, buying my groceries, that I can draw upon that inner experience and bring it there too. And so it gives me uh, a presence and the ability to choose my approach and my, what, what I, how I arise. Mm-hmm. So one last passage. Um, this one is about being upright in your experience. So mm. this is what your um, teacher said to you. Mm. People may think people may think that staying upright in their experience means that everything will feel fine. I'm gonna hang on a second because my phone's ringing. Yeah. So I'm gonna have I'm gonna wait yeah. and then. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where, I have one phone in my hand that's quiet, and then there's another phone ringing somewhere. That's fine. Talk about start. taking out a presence, right? <laughs> uh, well, just to be clear, Amy, um, you were in presence in figuring out what the phone was. Really. Huh. It's like, actually, you can be entirely present with that disturbance and figure out what the phone was. Every and moment, in every condition, every moment one can bring oneself present to, even disturbances, even the mind flitting off, even an upset. It's, that's a very, it's a very fascinating and powerful training because it's not like you're ever outside of the present moment in any way. So what would that have looked like not being present? <laughs> yes, I think very I, maybe good I'm like trying too hard to like yes. figure this out. Yes, and that's again where the paradox lies, because again, I will take you to the experientially. I think 
I only know that I am, um, I'm not present when I'm separated inside myself between thinking, what is that phone? And I don't think I should be thinking about this phone because I'm trying to think about being in the present moment, but wait a minute, it's still ringing. Now, maybe I shouldn't be doing it. Yes, let's do it. And there becomes this almost separation internally where one's feeling like an either or back and forth, what should I do? That I think is, and one could even say, now I'm wholly in the sense of an either or frustrated back and forth, what should I do feeling? But usually we get kind of controlled internally where we, we shut down and we feel like, Ugh, boy, this doesn't feel good and I'm not in a good space and this isn't quite where I should be. And instead with, when, with the kind of Zen practice I'm talking about, I go into those spaces all the time, but it's then saying, let me breathe into it and let it be that I'm now feeling a little unclear about what I should be doing and I'm feeling a little separated internally and that can be my moment. And so I don't know exactly how to describe it to you, but it's really in the sense of one has agency to be entirely Amy Robbins, entirely Chris Kievel right now and no separation between who I am and what I should be or wishing it was something else. And so there's not the conceptual frame of let me try to rearrange this in my mind because this isn't quite the way it should be to more like, what do I do now? Because this situation is calling for me to respond. Got it. This is deep. Okay. So I'm going to go back to the upright experience. (laughs) So people may think that staying upright in their experience means everything will feel fine. But in my experience, it's not like that. It's much more about being present with what is, whatever arises. And sometimes what arises can feel really bad. In that broken place, we each feel that this makes us untouchable, bad, wrong. And my mind, my ego's defense will tell me that no one else spends time in this pain. But it's not true. We all circumambulate this stupa. Circumambulate. You walk around. Walk around. Circumambulate. Okay. This stupa. So lean into it. Try to meet it where it's at. It requires being willing to give up our curative fantasy of life that somehow everything will be cured because of enlightenment and to be emotionally honest about our own life and our reactivity to it. The question is then how to grow in confidence that the aliveness of this moment is your life, is Buddha's life. The conditions for the occasion of awakening are the content of your life in this very moment. So what, first of all, what do you make of this? And second of all, I think this notion of enlightenment or awakening, like we're, it, it feels like there's this um, movement happening now that we're all searching for enlightenment or awakening. But mm. it sounds like your teacher is saying, this is any moment in our lives. I would agree. So it's not this like, I mean, I think people wait for, you know, this angels to come in and start singing and um, mm. Mm. the skies open up and suddenly you are enlightened. Sometimes angels do come in and start singing. <laughs> Sometimes the sky does open up. 
And sometimes there are these profound experiences of the heart opening and of connection and everything's beautiful and lovely. And I think that's actually a very, that's, that's our human birthright as well. I think in various ways, we all have those kinds of experiences. And it's possible sometimes to have more of those experiences. And some people are very much more attuned to that sort of thing. But um, in the Zen practice, there's a sense that um, those are, and I actually in my own direct observation, those are in fact transient, that all things arise and fall away. And I know when I started first studying with the teacher I work with, I said to him, well, isn't it possible to just wake up and, you know, achieve some state of awakening? And he said, in my experience and in all of the different spiritual teachers I've worked with, and he's studied with many, that's not true for anyone. We all go through the ups and downs of life. We all suffer and we all uh, struggle with the various different things that we are faced by. And that in fact, Deep spiritual practice may uh, doesn't do anything to reduce the level of that. It may change the nature of it. It may change our way of responding to it. But it's, it's like the fact that we breathe in and out. We have the ups and downs of life, and that's our truth. But the other very powerful element is in the Buddhist tradition, there is the dimension of awakening. And Buddha, the word Buddha means awake, and it was about an individual, and then many others who uh, engaged in a uh, life practice which caused them to have some awakening to their truth of who they were. So this is another paradox that has truth to it, in that we, we wake up to only exactly what we are right in this moment. And so in a way, even though there's waking up, there's no waking up at all, because there's nothing to be gained. And all of that to the intellect sounds like nonsense. It's like, it doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. And this practice then requires one to go beyond the intellect and find that, in fact, and, and I liken it in the book actually to the fact that light is both a particle and a wave, that we can make sense of the fact that light all around us acts both like an actual particle and it acts also like an actual wave And we don't have any experience of things that are simultaneously a particle and a wave in our daily lives. It's, it's un, we can't really make sense of that logically. And in the same way, so it is something that we can't know until we truly study it and understand that its dynamics. In the same way, I think Zen is pointing at something that can't truly be known with the intellect. And yet if one engages deeply, one starts seeing that there is a sense both of sudden awakening to the presence of who we are and a slow, gradual building of depth, of equanimity and uh, acceptance in our lives. And at the same time, our lives continue on just as they are. And again, it's, it's, a, it's experiential. It's like, it's, that's, that's in fact what's true, even though it doesn't sound logical. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I think it's a meditation practice, right? Yes. Because you're that's always right. practicing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And it's always, there's always, uh, the practice goes on. Well, this was 
super informative and helpful for me, and I'm sure it was for my listeners as well. If they want to learn more about you and about what you do and about your book, can you let us know where they can find you? Yeah, sure. So the book has a website. Um, it's the same as its title, findingzeninteordinary.com, findingzeninteordinary.com. In there, there is a, a description of the book and a little background on me, but also a, a contact page with a form that people can fill out if they want to contact me through that. And so that would be a way to reach me. Um, and the book is also available on Amazon and uh, other places where books are sold. And um, also through my publisher, John Hunt Publishing in London, uh, through their website. And, uh, and I would love to uh, connect with people if they are uh, interested. Um, it's a joy for me to engage with others who have an interest in this investigation uh, through whatever path they may be taking. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. And the book is a great uh, book to kind of keep by your bedside. You don't have to read it all at once. You can pick it up. You can put it down. You can read little pieces and parts of it. So I really, really enjoyed it as well. Well, thank you, Amy. I so appreciate this time with you today. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. <laughs>